Welcome. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. They did own a lot of land, but uh, not everyone who owned a lot of land were enslavers. The Schuylers were, and primarily the people that they held in bondage here were domestic workers. They worked around the house because the Schuylers had another institution as well called tenant farming. That's Heidi Hill with the Schuyler Mansion State Historical Site. Heidi and her colleague Jesse Serafilippi joins us to share the stories behind the stories of the Schuyler family and Alexander Hamilton. Schuyler Mansion was home to Philip J. Schuyler, the renowned Revolutionary War General, U.S. Senator, and business entrepreneur. He and his wife, Catherine Van Rensselaer, descended from affluent and powerful Dutch families. Together, they raised eight children in this home, including Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy, the three Schuyler sisters made famous by the Broadway musical Hamilton. Throughout the Schuyler family occupancy from 1763 to 1804, the mansion was alive with political, military, and social activities, including the wedding of daughter Elizabeth, otherwise known as Eliza, to Alexander Hamilton in 1780. Today, visitors can enjoy a guided tour of the mansion as well as an orientation in the visitor center focusing on Philip Schuyler's life. As we reveal the stories that the Schuyler Mansion has held within its walls, we first ask Heidi to give us a grounding with some Schuyler family history. Here's our conversation with Heidi Hill and Jesse Serafilippi. Heidi and Jesse, thank you so much for joining World Footprints today. Thanks for having, thank you for having us. us. It's, it's our pleasure. So both of you are work at the Schuyler Mansion in um, Albany, New York. And for the maybe one or two people who have not seen the play Hamilton, uh, who are the Schuylers? <laughs> What's the cliff note of their backstory? Uh, well, the Schuylers uh, were Dutch descendants. Uh, Philip Schuyler was fourth generation Dutch here in America. And his wife, Catherine Van Rensselaer Schuyler, who is descended from the Patroon, was also fourth generation Dutch here in America. Uh, I am the manager of both Kralo State Historic Site and Schuyler Mansion State Historic Site. And Kralo happens to be the girlhood home of Catherine Van Rensselaer. Uh, yeah. So the Van Rensselaers were invited here by the Dutch West India Company in the 1630s. They were invited because they were wealthy. Uh, Killian Van Rensselaer was a diamond and pearl merchant, and he had enough money to come and settle land, nearly a million acres. Uh, he was gifted by the Dutch West India Company, uh, who had claimed all of this land along the Hudson River Valley. And uh, he was then... Uh, committed to bring 50 farm families from Europe here to settle that land. What year are we talking about? That's 1630. And I'm just trying to establish that the Van Rensselaers were invited here because of their wealth. The Schuylers came here in the 17th century because they were looking for opportunity. They were carpenters and bakers. 
and they were attracted because the fur trade was opened up to them um, in the 1640s. -hmm. And so they came um, really hoping to make a fortune and they were lucky they did make a fortune. And over the years became the community leaders. Um, They amassed some land Um, Philip Schuyler was aired some of that land, and that's really where his wealth came from. Uh, But then he married Catherine Van Rensselaer in 1755 and became much wealthier. Jessie picked up the Schuyler family history, and she shared something that really surprised us. One of my favorite facts, I guess, about their marriage is that uh, they married kind of quickly and five months later had their first child. Um, who's the now famous uh, Angelica Schuyler Church. Catherine had 15 kids overall. She had her eldest daughter, Angelica, and her youngest, Katie, on the very same day, 25 years apart. Mm. Um, so when you know, we think of the Schuyler children, there were eight surviving children, three of them. The oldest three are Angelica, Elizabeth, and Margaret, or Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy, as they're most often known. They did have three brothers, um, John Bradstreet Schuyler, Philip Jeremiah, and Rensselaer, and then two much, much younger sisters, Cornelia and Katie. So there's kind of uh, multiple generations within just the siblings themselves. Eight surviving children. Jeez, and to think we felt sorry for the footnote that Peggy was given in the Hamilton production when really none of the other children were even mentioned. And it just shows that Peggy was more than just a footnote because uh, she made it. Uh, into the play, and she clearly had a very significant role in her family. And that's why we still wanted to know a little bit more about her. Well, I really like to talk about Peggy because I think that even though she gets a little short shrift in the musical, she probably outshined the other two. Um, Peggy was really recognized by her contemporaries as being very intelligent, highly intelligent, and really up on current events. Um, she, some men actually commented to her that maybe she was um, a little bit too much um, out there for her own good. You know, she was um, maybe too intelligent for her own good or, or showed off her intelligence a little bit more than she should. How did the Schuyler family get into politics? We certainly know of Philip Schuyler as the senator from New York because of the play, but the daughters themselves were very accomplished, and, and even uh, some of the great-grandchildren were very active uh, uh, in, in social and political causes. So I'm just curious where, where the political bug and where that interest came. Well, certainly um, they were a landed family. And once you have land, then you can vote in the 18th century. Uh, You know, uh, that was very important and asserting your vote and uh, your political uh, aspirations were important in that too. If you are in politics, you can control the land that you have. Uh, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with control. And 
the Schuylers uh, were part of the Federalist Party. And the Federalists believed in tight central government, uh, not really in including uh, a whole lot of input from the masses um, and those who did not own property. Jesse, as we explore life at the mansion, what are some of the things that people may not know about the Schuyler family that are interesting and perhaps the most curious things about the family? And, and, and that kind of leads into what are the stories that you're sharing that highlight those when people come to the mansion? Uh, sure, I guess with the Schuyler family specifically, um, there's a few stories about the children that I usually tell on tours um, that if people might be familiar with the musical, they may not know. One of them is that Angelica, the oldest daughter, actually eloped. So she ran off and married uh, her uh, husband, who was an Englishman, and then three of her younger siblings did the same exact thing. So half the kids elope is one of my favorite statistics. <laughs> um, and then we have uh, one of the young, the youngest son, Rensselaer. Sometimes we talk about him because he gets into some trouble with money, a little bit of gambling, and a lot of I think poor business choices. Where Skyler is always uh, bailing him out of debt multiple times, and I guess my kind of favorite uh, story would be. One uh, that has to do with, oh, there's so many, but I guess the one that really gets me, if I'm thinking of the elopements, is Philip Jeremiah, because he's the only son to elope, and he really tries not to. He's probably the one child who tries very hard not to elope, but his uh, father won't approve of the woman he wants to marry, Sarah or Sally Rutson. He calls her a uh, few really rude things Heidi might remember specifically what he called spirited spirited <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't believe he's met her yet at that point but um, Phil Jeremiah writes a really touching letter to one of Skyler's friends asking to intercede on his behalf and try to get his parents consent to marry Sarah because he doesn't want to lose his family. But ultimately he decides to marry uh, Sarah. He's disowned for an entire year. Uh, whereas Angelica had had kind of issues with her parents for about two weeks before her elopement was accepted, but it took Philip Jeremiah a year for his family to come around and finally invite Sarah to the house. And the other thing to know, I think, is that, you know, as Jesse pointed out, these children were 25 years apart in age. And so Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy are a different generation from those children you don't hear about. So uh, you have uh, Cornelia and Katie who are growing up in the new republic and not experiencing that revolutionary time. Uh, and so they're growing up with entirely different experiences. Mm -hmm. So I always think that's an interesting point to make. The Schuylers were landowners, so we knew that they were probably enslavers. But the musical portrayed the Schuyler sisters as abolitionists, so we sought to reveal the truth and reconcile the competing historical narratives.
So let me just back up a little bit. Um, they did own a lot of land, but um, not everyone who owned a lot of land were enslavers. The Schuylers were, uh, and primarily the people that they held in bondage here were domestic workers. They worked around the house because the Schuylers had another institution as well called uh, you know, tenant farming. And so they had people uh, really uh, consigned to the land for their entire lives and usually their, their eldest son's life as well. And those were the tenant farmers who sometimes rented enslaved people from the Schuylers to help them during planting or harvest time. Um, but generally the enslaved people were working around the house to support the lifestyle that the Schuylers were living. So they had their main house here in Albany, but they also had their estate in Saratoga. And that's where most of their land was held. And there were enslaved people associated with that estate as well. And then there were men who were carters who were traveling back and forth between the two areas. Uh, you know, it's, it's a day's trip, if not better, sometime depending on the weather. Uh, so the Schuylers were enslavers. We estimate that they held between 40 and 60 people in bondage during their lifetime uh, here, as well as before Schuyler Mansion was built in 1760s. Uh, and certainly their children were a different generation, but their children were also enslavers. So the play may show them as abolitionists, but they were not in the sense that we would think of today. Perhaps they had more progressive views because they were a different generation and times were changing, but um, most all of them were enslavers. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them manumitted their slaves and certainly by 1827, you know, they, they pretty much had to do that. In an article she wrote for the New York Times, Jessie caused an uproar when she revealed that Alexander Hamilton was also an enslaver. I wrote some uh, an article called This Odious and Immoral Thing, Alexander Hamilton's Hidden History as an Enslaver. And I wrote it specifically to give the other side of the story because in every Hamilton biography or piece I read, it would talk about what they would call abolitionist activities, but would really be termed manumissionist activities, um, if anything. And his activity as far as slavery was always written off or excused. And there were a lot of assumptions made that he didn't agree with what he was doing, even though he was uh, purchasing enslaved people for, say, his in-laws. And those assumptions were baseless. There was no evidence to back up that he didn't agree with what he was doing. And the, the biggest um, claim was that he did not enslave people. And when I was researching this, I went into it with an open mind, you know, but with the question of is that true or not? And I found out from his cash books, from his own handwriting, that he did enslave people. It's really right there. And even his grandson in a biography that didn't get much attention um, or doesn't get a lot of attention today is from the early 20th century. He just outright states that, but 
every other biography kind of follows the biography Hamilton's son wrote, where he claims that his father was an abolitionist. And uh, the New York Times article covered what I wrote and some of the uh, differing uh, opinions on it. Um, they talked to a few historians and I've been fortunate, a lot of historians, especially historians who study slavery uh, specifically in the North have backed up what I've written. And uh, certainly within the agency and the site, uh, we, we vetted the article, it took two years to research and write, um, but it was, it's, it was worth it to reveal this to the public. <laughs> This is the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Discover the world when you visit our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content. Here's more of our conversation with Heidi Hill and Jesse Serfilippi from the Schuyler Mansion State Historical Site as they continue to reveal the stories behind the stories of the Schuyler family and Alexander Hamilton. Now, Jesse and Heidi, each of you mentioned manumitted slaves. So clearly some were let go and were given their freedom. What can you tell us, broadly speaking, about, about, about some of those who were enslaved? And the other question that I have is, did, did the Schuyler Mansion have uh, indentured servants uh, working there as well? We don't have a lot of evidence that there were indentured servants. There was hired help. For instance, there was a hired gardener at one point. There may have been hired governance, a governor, I'm sorry, governesses for the children. Um, there were hired tutors, but uh, mostly there were people who were enslaved doing the work at the site. Uh, so manumission was a law. You know, uh, there was a law in New York State that people would be manumitted as of 1827. And depending on your age, uh, you could be manumitted before that time. So it was gradual manumission. So everyone saw the writing on the wall. This was coming. And the New York Manumission Society, which is touted by so many as, you know, the members were abolitionists, it was really developed in order to ease the pain, uh, ease the dependency of free labor on the landowners and the enslavers. So that's what the society was about. And yes, there were people who were more progressive thinking in that group, um, but there were also enslavers in that group. And so when we say manumission, it's, um, you know, working toward a time when there would be no more enslaved people in New York State. And they did it gradually to really ease the pain of the enslaver. I'm curious, what are some of the stories about the enslaved people that you share? One woman who I've been researching probably for about two years now is named Silva. She and uh, two of her children, Tally Ho and Tom, and a man named Toby, who I'm currently not sure if 
they were related in any way, um, were purchased by Schuyler in 1797. And her and her uh, three children, she has another child named Hanover during the time she's enslaved by the Schuylers, are manumitted upon Schuyler's death by his sons and sons-in-law. So I've been trying to find her after she's manumitted through censuses and other records in Albany. And I've found a few possibilities for her life after slavery, but it's, of course, it's not easy because not everything's recorded. But what I hope to do is to show a few different avenues she could have taken after she and her children were manumitted because they are um, just four of seven people who were ultimately manumitted by the Schuylers, uh, well, the Schuyler sons. We wanted to learn more about the altruistic work of the Schuyler sisters that was alluded to in Hamilton. I guess Eliza comes to mind when uh, I think along those lines because she like the musical says, she lives for a very long time. She'll just be 97. And uh, really within a year or so of her husband's death, she throws herself into uh, working with an orphanage, which does turn into the first private orphanage in New York City. It's still um, around today. It's the Graham Wyndham Foundation. And she becomes its first directress in, I believe, 1821. And she serves in that role until she's 91 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, her daughter kind of gets her to step down at that point. Um, but she's really instrumental in fundraising for it and for overseeing some of its daily operations. So when I think of, I guess, philanthropy in, the, in that generation of the family, she's the one who comes to mind as someone who is making those changes later on, especially. I think she's credited at one point to helping um, develop the first free school for Blacks here in Albany. But really what happened is that she sold land to a person of color who was free, Benjamin Lattimore. Uh, and then he took his land and gave that to the free school for Black children in 1811. We learned that the school is now an archaeological site that is one block from the mansion. The mansion has gone through several restorations, and it celebrated a centennial in 2017. We asked about the centennial and the process for maintaining the mansion's historical integrity. The place was opened in 1917 as a museum, and so we celebrated 100 years of being opened as a historic site or museum in 2017. And beginning in about 2010, we decided to start work on restorations. Primarily, the restorations had to do with uh, decorative touches inside the mansion, wallpaper and paper mache ceilings, and those sorts of things that we know were here in the 18th century that we wanted to restore. It's taking on more of the character that it would have had when the Schuylers lived here. And I think then people can really um, envision the place as it was in the 18th century. So what would be the visitor's experience? Currently, during the time of COVID, we have been doing open house tours. So we've been open and uh, people are seeing exactly what they would see in the uh, 
regular open season as a guided tour. Uh, but the open house sort of gives people a little bit more flexibility and it seems to have been a great way to start conversations with people. So we're able to engage more in conversations. So visitors are most thrilled with the best parlor uh, that has been uh, almost fully restored. It still needs wallpaper, uh, but we have now an ornate carpet in the style that the Schuylers had. We have a paper mache ceiling that we made in-house uh, and that is uh, very ornate on the ceiling. Uh, we have a chandelier and new draperies and, and all of those sorts of things, including a brand new backgammon table that we've purchased. It's an 18th century one, but new to us. And so this is the room that people that the Schuylers showed off in the 18th century. It's the room where Elizabeth and Alexander Hamilton were married on December 14th, 1780. And so that's the room people like to see. Once they see that, just within the front door, we can engage in deeper conversations about, uh, you know, what took place in the house and uh, the people who helped support this lifestyle here, those people who were held in bondage. We have focus tours as well. So one that I usually give uh, when, when we're able to is the Hamilton tour, which is about um, both Elizabeth and Alexander Hamilton and their time in Albany. And it kind of takes you through the home from their perspective. Uh, we have one about the women of Schuyler Mansion because the Schuyler sisters are so popular. And right before COVID, we were about to debut our new focus tour, which is about the people, the Schuylers enslaved. People visit mansions and they hear about the work that people who were enslaved did. And we want to avoid that. We're really trying to get at um, the personal stories and the humanity. And, you know, when we think about what these people were cooking or serving to the Schuylers, we want to think about what these people were eating themselves. Mm -hmm. We want to understand better what a trip to Saratoga meant for someone who was enslaved, whether they had to have papers was it an opportunity to visit with friends and family or was it um, a really terrifying experience to go between here and Saratoga? Um, some of these things we can gather, um, some things we will never know the answers to, uh, but we want to delve into these questions with visitors in order to um, really, you know, <laughs> get people to understand that this, they were stuck in an institution, but these were individuals, they were people, and we will continue to work to find as much information about them and their lives and, you know, make those lives sound as rich as possible. You know, a number of the people who were here sought freedom. We know that at least one person, Adam Way, uh, succeeded. And he had a life, even though he was 80, when he fled here, uh, he had a life after slavery here. Um, we know that some people here were married to people, free people in Schenectady. 
um, as well as people here married to people at other homes in Albany. And we want to make those connections and think about how they continue to keep family ties and uh, keep their families together. So um, those are things that we're investigating now. And Jesse and Ian are doing a big networking project on that, which is really fascinating. But then we also want to look at the next generation, the Schuyler children, and see how they interacted with people who were once enslaved, free Black people as well. Um, for instance, Philip Jeremiah Schuyler and his wife, Marianne Sawyer, were fast friends with Pierre Toussaint. And uh, I have a quote, Philip Jeremiah um, says, he said, I have known Christians who were not gentlemen, gentlemen who were not Christians, but one man I know who was both, and that man is black. And that's Pierre Toussaint. And later, I think he eulogizes that he was one of the um, most, uh, I forget what he said, but he, he said he was the, the most outstanding man he'd ever met. Um, so these are stories we want to tell here as well. Um, and, you know, it fits in our, our interpretive statement. So these are stories that we will be telling. This was such a fascinating reveal. We cannot wait until we visit the mansion and uncover more stories that are lesser known. Before we ended our conversation with Heidi and Jesse, we were curious to know if there were any descendants of the Schuyler or Hamilton families that are involved with the Schuyler Mansion today. We had a family reunion in 2017, and we had, I think, 30 people come to that, and they were very enthusiastic about Schuyler history, Hamilton history, but also about the uh, history of the enslaved people here. Um, and one particular descendant, I'm forgetting his first name, but uh, he and his wife are missionaries in Africa, and uh, they were very interested in the uh, memorial that we had here for the Schuyler Flats, uh, formerly enslaved people, uh, and he was very interested in that story. Um, so these people are uh, really interested in knowing more about that, but there are other family members who don't want us to reveal uh, much of that history as the Schuylers and the Hamiltons being enslavers too. So that's something to know. There, there are people on both sides of that. You know, the Hamilton story has been curated very carefully, and Lin-Manuel Miranda alludes to that a little bit with Elizabeth burning the letters, uh, but she hired numerous biographers to write the Hamilton biography and fired them, or others warned each other, don't go there because they really only want to tell a portion of the story, one that puts Hamilton in a positive light. And so papers were edited. Uh, the history was curated very carefully. And so there are many things that we'll never know. And um, there are still some descendants who don't want those things revealed to this day.
You know, I love the Broadway production Hamilton, and I fell in love with these characters that I didn't know much about. And I still love the production, but I'm really disappointed to know how history has been manipulated. And I think it's very important to share a book that Heidi told us about that actually gives another side of this whole story with the Hamilton, the musical, and uh, in history. It's a book called The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda. And she said this book presents a different side, obviously, to the Broadway musical production of Hamilton. And one reviewer I read said that this book reveals Hamilton's musical crimes against history. That's a pretty bold allegation. And the thing of it is, is that we know history is often and has been written by those who are the victors. And so we just have to remember that there are other sides to a lot of the narratives that we've taken for granted as fact. And we're seeing that change a lot with more research from academic circles that are uncovering and telling the truth in fuller narratives. Right. And, and that's why I really appreciate the work that Heidi and Jesse are doing at the Schuyler Mansion and the, the stories that, that are surfacing because of their research. Another thing that really gosh, kind of smacked me a little bit, is the fact that Eliza really manipulated Alexander Hamilton's, her husband, who was, according to his grandson's biography, that is not well known, but he was a bit of a cad, and she really manipulated his biography, even firing several biographers until they met her demands for his historical narrative. And I just think these people do us a disservice. I did a little bit of research into this grandson of Alexander Hamilton's who wrote apparently a more authentic version of Hamilton's life story. This grandson was named uh, Alan McLean Hamilton. And his book was called The Intimate Life of Alexander Hamilton. And he really did not paint his grandfather in in a pretty picture. And You know, it made me wonder, dear, when we saw the play and, you know, learned of these stories, made me wonder, can art and history really intersect in an authentic way? It can, but we also just have to be mindful of the concept of artistic license. And when we start telling history and we compact it into a two and a half hour musical, There are certain things that are just going to have to change, and people have to know that going in. And whether it's with a play or with a book, there's always that bias of the author or the writer or those who are actually entrusted Mm. with telling that story. As we close, I'd like to leave you with these words from Alexander Hamilton himself. Those who stand for nothing fall for everything. We are standing for the full narrative of our history to be told. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are honored that you spent this time with us. Thank you for allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher.
Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.